There is such a great need for apologetics in our day, and that's why we started the Spirit and Truth Conference. Not many of us were well catechized growing up, and so Michael Voris has the goal of catechizing everyone as well as the salvation of souls. We came across Michael Voris on the internet with, through RealCatholicTV.com and his daily episode called The Vortex, and we just love it. He has a clear message of truth that's spoken with holy boldness, and that is very refreshing. He is a revert who is also interested in history, politics, and, of course, Catholicism. He received his sacred theology baccalaureate from the Angelicum in Rome, magna cum laude. He is also our first speaker we've ever had who's won an Emmy, and he's actually won four Emmys. So that's a first for us. He is the president and founder of St. Michael's Media, and his goal is to save souls from eternal damnation, which is quite a laudable goal. Um, and only two years ago, he began the first ever online Catholic TV station, and the shows are so popular, they just celebrated over four million downloads off of YouTube. So the talk that Michael Voris is going to give now is called Catholics and Protestants. How much unity is truly possible when it comes to different faiths that can't reach agreement on such important topics like scripture, the nature of the church, grace, justification, original sin, and the sacraments? And those are the topics of disagreement just between the Protestants. When you factor in Catholic theology, it can get pretty confusing, but it doesn't have to be like that at all. There's something for everyone in our next talk called Catholics and Protestants. So please welcome Michael Voris. Well, hello again. For the purposes of the DVD, hello again. <laughs> it's nice to be here again. <laughs> Catholics and Protestants, boy oh boy, things have changed, haven't they? 500 years ago, we used to burn each other at the stake, and kings used to outlaw this one, and queens would outlaw that one, and now we're all just sort of believing the same thing, isn't it nice? Oh, it's so nice. No, we all don't believe the same thing. We shouldn't be burning each other at the stake, but uh, unless the stake is a nice filet mignon, never mind. Um, <clears throat> see, that's why I don't do stand-up. <laughs> no one ever laughs. <laughs> If, uh, when we talk about the relationship between Catholics and Protestants, it's important to begin to understand exactly what do we mean by that. If we're talking about Catholics, we're talking about people who belong to the church established by Jesus Christ, to whom he said to Peter, you are Peter. There you go. <laughs> See, they say we don't know the Bible. Of course we know the Bible. But when we talk about Protestants, now, Protestants is a collective umbrella term. There are, depending on how you count, somewhere between 30 and 40,000 different flavors of Protestantism. Some of them have a lot of things in common with others. Some of them don't have things in, in common with each other. Some groups count themselves as Christian when they're really not. For the record, Mormons are not Christians. They deny the Trinity, they deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. They deny the Trinity, they deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. Those two denials knock you out of the box of calling yourself a Christian. So, uh, well, that's a whole different talk, but I just like to lay that out sometimes because people aren't necessarily uh, on board with that or don't understand it. 
When we talk about Protestants, however, there's a whole range, a whole range. Many different Protestant denominations since the Protestant revolt of the 16th century have come into existence and gone out of existence. They simply appeared, ran their course, and disappeared. There are other groups that splintered off themselves. For example, there are four versions of Lutherans. There's the Missouri Synod, uh, Elka, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Those two groups in and of themselves disagree wildly over uh, their own specific points, their own specific theologies. Methodists and Baptists, you put them in a room together, only one of them is coming out alive. Uh, so while we talk about the difference between Catholics and Protestants, we really need to understand, first of all, what's going on in the Protestant world. The Protestant world is based on a philosophical approach to theology that ultimately says, I am able to decide for myself what this theological truth means. It stands in direct opposition to the Catholic understanding, a Catholic philosophy of what theology is. The Catholic Church is based on the authority given to it by God to teach, preach, and govern. Protestant, the root word of which is protest, protests that understanding. The word itself comes from, Protestant comes from when uh, uh, an assembly in Germany leveled some charges against Martin Luther, who was not present, and a number of people there who were backing Martin Luther protested that decision and left. So technically the term Protestant comes from the protest of the decision of an assembly, they used to call them diets uh, in Germany, but the, the diet, the assembly was about Martin Luther's challenges to the faith, uh, to the Catholic faith. Um, so the word Protestant ultimately means I protest what the Catholic Church teaches. Now an awful lot of Protestants today don't call themselves Protestants, mostly fundamentalist groups don't call themselves Protestants, they don't refer to themselves as Protestants and say, well we're not protesting anything, we're all for Jesus. We're not protesting anything. We don't protest this or that. We're just Christian. And what's happened in the last 30 or 40 years is the term Christian, the label Christian, has kind of been hijacked by some fundamentalist Protestant theologies and understandings and ministers and preachers and kind of glommed onto to the degree that it appears as though Catholics aren't Christians. You hear this distinction when you just talk to people in the street. Oh, are you Catholic or are you Christian? Uh, let me set you straight on something. We're the original Christians. We still are the original Christians. Everything else is kind of a wannabe. My father converted from uh, Nazarene. He was raised Nazarene. He actually went to Nazarene minister school uh, for a couple of years, a year and a half, I think it was, before he met my mother, uh, who was off the boat, Irish Catholic. He met her in, uh, yeah, well, that was a, uh, uh, <laughs> wish I'd have been alive to see that. <laughs> and he said to me one time, just a few years ago, uh, after my mother died, God rest her soul, he said, uh, uh, he said, yeah, I had all, intents, all intentions of converting your mother to being a Nazarene. 
And uh, he had told her that once, and he was relaying the story to me. And uh, when he said that to my mom, years after they were married and he'd converted, she was sitting on the couch, he tells me the story, and he said that to her, and she looked up at him and just went, right, <laughs> and looked back down. <laughs> so that's where I get it from, by the way. <laughs> so, um, but when we're talking about Protestants, it's very important to understand what the philosophical underpinnings cause to happen in the Protestant world. If I get to decide what this line in the Bible means, but you get to decide also, and you do, what happens when we all three disagree? Well, we all go start a religion. And if I get most of the people over here to agree with my interpretation, and you get you know, a few people there to agree with yours, and you get the rest of the room, well, then you're the big Protestant denomination. I'm the televangelist on TV, and you're just going to fizzle away somewhere because you know, your stuff won't, you know, it just won't make sense to people. But what happens when someone in the great big Protestant denomination over here, because the more people you have, the more people are interpreting the scripture. So what happens when everyone at that table, three tables over there, all of a sudden disagrees with your interpretation, Pastor Karen? All of a sudden, they go start their own religion. How can one Protestant say to another Protestant, in all intellectual honesty, you are wrong? They can't. You can't. No Protestant can say to another Protestant, your interpretation is wrong. Because the whole underlying theory of Protestantism is I decide because the Holy Spirit talks to me through the Bible. And that's it. I don't need a man. I don't need a church. I certainly don't need a pope. Because in effect, I am my own pope. That creates not a unification, not an integration of the truth. It creates a disintegration. When Martin Luther revolted against the church in 1517, there was one opposition to the church. Now, 500 years later, there are 30 or 40,000 different oppositions, and not just in opposition to the church, but in opposition to each other. In opposition to each other. You'll run into all kinds of understandings and crazy definitions of things. I've run into Protestant ministers, Baptist ministers, who've told me they, can, they, they personally could kill as many people as they want, and they go to heaven. Not the people they kill themselves. Because they have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, and that's it. They're done. That flies in direct opposition to the truth of Scripture. I've had other... Uh, people who are Protestant uh, tell me on a radio show. As a matter of fact, I think we have this, if I'm not mistaken, it's one of our podcasts. I was, I was a guest on a Protestant radio show and I got into it with the minister um, who, as he kept saying things, I would ask him questions. I'd say, well, do you mean this? Well, so, okay, if you mean that, then you mean this also. And he kept going on. He finally admitted on the air that he was as holy as St. Paul. 
because his position had to take him there. He was as holy as St. Paul. So I asked him, well, if you're as holy as St. Paul, why aren't you writing scripture? Why aren't you inspired? When you lose your moorings, and this is what's happened in the Protestant world, when you lose your moorings, you can come up with any ridiculous sounding theory or philosophy that you want, and there's no one there to challenge it because there's no objectivity. There is no appeal to authority. There is no, this is the answer and everything needs to conform to that. That's Catholic. Protestant is, I decide. I decide. This, is, this creates an enormous problem when Catholics and Protestants sit down and have a discussion about Jesus. Huge problems. First of all, not all of them believe he rose from the dead. Huge numbers of Protestants don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. They believe it was spiritual. They believe what the... Uh, um, uh, apostles and first witnesses to the resurrection saw it was a ghost. Others, rightly, absolutely believe Jesus rose from the dead. And it was his physical body that came out of the tomb and his physical body that appeared to the apostles and the other witnesses to the resurrection, the eyewitnesses. How do you start having a conversation with that group? Who is Jesus Christ? Did Jesus Christ found a community of believers and imbue it with his own power to forgive sins? To turn bread and wine into his body and blood so that he would always be present with us and fulfill his own prophecy that I will not leave you orphans, I will come back to you? Or does that have reference to something at the end of the world and in between time we just sort of figure it out for ourselves? How do you have a conversation like this? when the very person we're having the conversation about, we so fundamentally disagree on his very nature. Did this action redeem the world? Or did it save the world? That's a huge point. What if I acknowledge this action and then therefore say, I'm saved, I go to heaven? Is salvation a one-time event, or is it a process? Can you be saved and lose your salvation? Can you have your faith and lose your faith? The Protestant community hasn't even hammered these things out between themselves yet. Which is why we as Catholics when we are evangelizing and talking and preaching and doing all of the things we need to do, need to understand who is the person sitting in front of me that I'm talking to right now. There are some things that all Protestants agree with each other on. And that one thing, one of them, is the Catholic Church is wrong. Another thing is the Pope isn't particularly anybody special. Jesus Christ is not present in the Eucharist. That is what makes a Protestant a Protestant. That one point. Because everything in Catholicism flows from that truth and goes back to that truth. 
Jesus Christ is really, truly, substantially present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under the appearance of bread and wine. That one truth is the dividing line between Catholics and Protestants. The entire reason the papacy exists is to support that truth, to preach that truth, to ordain men to the priesthood who confect that sacrament and bring Christ down from heaven on our altars, to forgive sins so that we can receive the body and blood of Christ, to baptize people as, a, as the initiation into this church that they can do this, so that in our bodies and our souls and our bodies we can be as united to Christ in this earth in preparation for the next life. This is why the Catholic Church exists. The Protestant Church does not exist for this reason. First of all, it's not a church. There is no such thing as a Baptist church, Methodist church, Episcopalian church, Congregational church. Christ established one church and one church only. All the rest of these groups are something other than churches. They are religious communities. They are ecclesial communions. They are anything but church. Now I want to take a, I want to step outside of the conversation for a moment and clarify something so I don't get accused of this. What we're talking about in this talk is the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. We are not talking about individual Catholics and individual Protestants. We are not saying that people who agree with this and subscribe to Protestantism are going to hell. I don't even know where I'm going. I can't say this person's going to hell or heaven. I also can't say of Catholics, you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. I can say that on these two systems, one was established by Almighty God, the other was established by men and has continued to be ripped apart and torn apart by men so that now you have 30 and 40,000 different and who knows 10 years from now you may have 50,000. It is the nature of Protestantism to be disintegrated. It is the nature of Catholicism to be integrated. This is the truth of the Catholic faith. Everything in Catholicism revolves around the Holy Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament. Everything. Why do you go to confession? So you can receive Jesus' body and blood. Why are you baptized? So you can come into this church, live a life, a sacramental life, and receive Jesus' body and blood. This is why we're Catholic. For any other reason that people are attracted to Christianity, they are only attracted partially. I was working with a fellow once before I started doing this formally, and a really nice fellow, great fellow, the whole bit, and we were sitting, we were off on an assignment, and, uh, and something happened, and the, we, got, we got there a day early, or whatever, we had an entire day to sit around and say something. Now, he was involved in his, uh, his congregation as an elder, or whatever it is, uh, some leader in, the, in his congregation, and, uh, and we got talking. And here's a fellow who told me he's read the Bible back to front, front to back, upside down, laying in the bed, standing in the showers, up and down, and he knows everything about the Bible. And when I said, I'm curious then, if you're, uh, how do you square John chapter 6? 
He's like, what do you mean John chapter 6? I said, where Jesus says, eat my flesh. He'd never read it. He's like, how can you possibly have read the Bible back and forth, upside down, 16 different ways in 34 different languages, and you haven't come across that? He said, well, tell me about it. So I told him about it. And I said, well, here's what it is. He's like, and of course, he started with the, you know, uh, well, he's just talking symbolically. Well, he doesn't really mean eat his flesh. And, you know, he went through the whole standard panoply of, you know, excuses and all the stuff that they say. And I said, well, then why did Jesus, when the Jews standing there, his followers, understood what he meant and got up and left, if they had misunderstood it or Jesus hadn't said it correctly, why didn't he say, oh, no, no, wait, guys, I don't actually mean eat my flesh. I mean, you know, spiritually, symbolically, come on back. I just had a bad day talking. He let them go. He let them go. In all of sacred scripture, there is only one teaching of Jesus that the people got up and left. And that was it. The Eucharist. It's the only time in all of the Gospels where we hear people got up and left. The Eucharist is the dividing line between Catholics and Protestants. Now, because this is so central that all the truths of Catholicism, everything, everything, flows from the Eucharist. The scriptures flow from the Eucharist. The uh, dogmas on the Blessed Mother flow from the Eucharist. Uh, how do we have the body of Christ? Well, we have the body of Christ because our Blessed Mother gave him his body. Everything in Catholicism is so interconnected and makes so much sense and fits together that it is a wonder to behold. Everything on this side falls apart, constantly doesn't make sense, isn't even logical internally. This is not, we're better and you guys are horrible. This is, to whom much has been given, much will be demanded. We're not better. We've been given something better. And it is our responsibility to, to get out and inform the world of that so that they too can enjoy this. That's what we've been given this for. We've been given this gift of the Catholic faith who knows why individually in each of our lives, why we were chosen and somebody not. But the point is, as we sit here right now today, we have been. And we have the responsibility to go preach. Live, love, preach, teach. That's what we are called to do. That's what we are commanded to do. This is not an option. This is not an option. I know probably in years or centuries past, there was probably an awful lot of animosity on the part of Catholics and Protestants and different kings and rulers and lords and barons and everybody fighting over land and this and that and calling it religious wars and all kinds of horrible feelings. My mom was Irish and raised in a very Irish Catholic enclave of Northern England uh, during World War II. And she said that it was routine, routine that uh, the Protestant kids would walk down one side of the street and go to school and the Catholic kids would go down to the walk down the across the other side of the street and what would they hear the uh, uh, Protestant kids would yell across the street to the Catholic kids uh, you Catholic bulldogs and the Catholics would yell back ah oh, shut up you Protestant pigs
So we have to understand that we're dealing with very, very, very deep cultural issues and psychological issues and feelings and the whole bit. That's why the conversations can never be, they can never be about, I'm better than you, da da da. You should always talk about these things when you're talking with Protestants, and you need to talk to Protestants. You're commanded to talk to people about the truth of the faith. It's not an option. It's not an option. So when you're talking, assess some truths. How much does the person know about the faith? We just went through 12 myths. 11, sorry. Uh, we'll take care of the 12th one later. Uh, I was testing you. Uh, <laughs> you passed. <laughs> um, you need to assess some truth. What do they know about the faith? You know, what do they understand the Pope to be? Do they understand that the Pope is some king and monarch and we all grovel and bow down and, you know, bow and kiss rings and all of that? Or do they understand that the papacy, the infallibility of the papacy, is given as a great gift from Almighty God to ensure that we don't wind up like that? Unsure of what the truth is, not having no objective source to turn to. But the papacy is the unifying force of the faith, that it gives us this, this unity, visible unity, right there in that man. Whether he is particularly sinful or holy or anywhere on the spectrum, his office is a guarantee from Almighty God that we have a touchstone right back to Jesus and the apostles. When my dad was in Protestant seminary, uh, Nazarene seminary, he said uh, that they were studying uh, uh, the history of the church and in the or history of, the, of Christianity. And they did, you know, they obviously talked about Jesus and, you know, Paul and the whole up to the Acts of the Apostles. And then, 1517. Right up to Martin Luther. It went from Paul to Martin Luther. And nothing in between. Ask some... If you get into these discussions... I'm sorry. When you get into these discussions... <laughs> ask a Protestant to tell you, how do we know Jesus is divine? How do we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Jehovah's Witnesses, if you get into a discussion with them, they'll point out a good number of seemingly contradictory passages in Scripture where Jesus says, uh, the Father is greater than I. See, he's not divine. How do you square that line if you're a Christian? If you're a Catholic, if you're a Protestant, how do you explain that? Jesus just said the Father is greater than I, yet the Catholic Church teaching is they're equal. Substantial, consubstantial with each other, have been for all eternity, eternally begotten of the Father, yet here he is, one of them, saying, oh, Father's greater than I. How do you explain that? Well, as Catholics, we know that misinterpretation of that is not true. But we know that from an entirely different place than Protestants know that. How do you know the scriptures are inspired? My brother Methodist. Where in Scripture does it say, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, where does the Gospel of Matthew say, hello, I'm the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm divinely inspired? Where does it say that? Have a discussion about sacred Scripture. This is what that Where Did the Bible Come From series we've produced over there on the table is all about. Have a discussion and say, how do you know that 
Why are you quoting scripture at me, Mr. Presbyterian, Mr. Congregationalist? Who told you that book is inspired? The book itself doesn't claim to be inspired. When you're rattling off quotes and passages incorrectly interpreting them from the four Gospels, do you know there were 27 Gospels? How did we get to four? You keep quoting the Acts of the Apostles to me, but do you know that there was a book called the Acts of Pilate that was also floating around? There was a Gospel of Barnabas and a Gospel of Thomas. Why aren't you quoting from them? Who told you those four books are inspired and these others aren't? Where are you getting that information from? Who told you that? Well, Reverend Smith up the street. Who told him? The Catholic Church told you. You're quoting a Catholic document to me to essentially prove to me that the Catholic Church is wrong. That can't be true. That can't be true. There are 73 books in the Bible, not 73 minus 7. There are 73 books in the Bible. Where'd those 73 books come from? Who said there were 73? Who said this is the list? Why do you agree with this list? St. Augustine himself said, I would not believe the Gospels themselves if it were not for the authority of the church telling me so. It's a good point. Protestantism has so many, so many internal inconsistencies with it that if you are a Catholic and you know your faith and somebody is willing to listen, which is another thing you have to discern, if someone is willing to listen, you can show them the falsity of what they have believed and you can bring them to the light of the truth. That's your duty. It's your obligation as a Catholic to do that. Well, I don't know all this stuff. I, you know, I didn't know that. I'd never heard that before. Then go find out. We don't get to sit back and say, oh, well, the priests get to do that. I'm just going to sit here and go to the soccer game and carry the kids back and forth with the groceries. Maybe 50 years ago, maybe 100 years ago, when there were 7,000 priests in every parish and 8 million nuns in every school, and they were all well catechized, and they got to tell everything. Maybe that was good enough back then. Well, that was then. This is now. We all know about the horrible shortage of priests, the desertion of religious orders by nuns, priests, and brothers. Archbishop Fulton Sheen, of whom I am a great admirer, said that, uh, do not look to the, who is, he asked the question rhetorically, who is going to save our church? And he was saying this in front of a conference of lay people, if I remember correctly. He said, it is not, do not look to the priests, do not look to the bishops. It's up to you, the laity, to remind our priests to be priests and our bishops to be bishops. Vatican II is called the Council of the Laity because of how it encouraged and inspired people, you, me, us, to do this stuff. I wouldn't have been doing this 50 years ago. 
You wouldn't be sitting here 50 years ago. There'd be five bishops up here, three nuns, 65 priests, and they'd be having beautiful, wonderful, marvelous reflections on the deep, profound mysteries of the faith. That was then. This is now. I used to make a whole bunch of money in TV. Now I make no money in the gospel. <laughs> well, the retirement plan, I, I haven't read all the details in the contract, but the retirement plan better be good. Um, but this is where we are here. You know, you can't, you know, we can't flip on the TV and watch Archbishop Sheen walk across the TV anymore and convince people of the truth of the faith like he did in the 1950s. Sure, you can if you put on EWTN and you happen to hit it at the right time and you know, it doesn't look like something hokey and you know, horrible and black and white and you can't hear the audio very well and all of that. Learn the faith. Learn the, what is the faith? What is the faith? The faith is the formal expression of this love that we talked about before in the last talk. It's not a list of rules and things. It's beautiful. One of my, uh, one of my colleagues at, uh, at the studio back in Detroit, um, her son uh, goes to Notre Dame largely under my influence. Yeah, go Irish. Um, and, uh, but he knows the faith very well. He knows the faith very well. He hung around the studio for four years uh, before he went there. And... Uh, and you know, he and I got very close and uh, we'd spend hours and hours and hours talking about the faith. He called me up last year to say, you know, hey Mike, could you read this, proofread this paper I've written on Athanasius and the Incarnation. So he sent me, and there he is right now calling to tell me the score of the Notre Dame-Michigan game. <laughs> and he, uh, he called me up and said, hey, could you read this paper uh, that I've written, but before you do, it's a two-page article uh, gleaned from Athanasius's writings about the Incarnation. And I said, yeah, I'm not doing much. Just yeah, go ahead and send it to me. And I opened it up, and I read it, and I was in tears over what Athanasius had written about Jesus becoming, uh, the second person of the Trinity becoming, God, uh, becoming man. It was absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful. And I'm sitting there reading it, and I called him back up and I, I started to read his paper and I said, I, I, I need some time to compose myself. This is absolutely, it, it's breathtaking. It speaks to the soul. This is what the Catholic faith is. The Catholic faith is, is, is all of this, this tradition where you know, we stand on the, shul uh, the shoulders of martyrs. People who so loved Christ that they willingly threw themselves into the mouths of lions. They turned themselves over. That's what this faith is. And if you live it and love it and you know it, why would you not want to know this stuff? Who, who gets married and doesn't really want to know everything about their spouse? When you're raising children, you just say to your children, you know, how was school today? Ah, never mind, I don't want to know. <laughs> when you love people, when you love, love, you're willing to sacrifice everything, you want to know everything. That's where evangelization comes from, not from a list of, oh, here's the 14 precepts of the church and the seven corporal works of mercy. Now memorize them and make sure you come back because there's a quiz tomorrow. And I don't know if you, I don't care if you know what the word corporeal means or not. It's not what the church is, it's not what the faith is. Yes, you do have to go through some formalized part of that, but, the, but that's not where it ends, that's just where it begins. You have to understand what the truths of the church are. What is the church saying? 
And when you combine that with your devotional life and your prayer life, all of a sudden, wham! The Holy Spirit says, come on out here into the deep. Come out here into the deep. This is what our responsibility is to be Catholic. To do this. We're, we're called to save the world. We are called to save the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But what happens to the salt if it loses its flavor? It is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. To whom much has been given, much will be demanded. To whom much has been given, much will be demanded. We have been given the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Present to us daily, if we are able. At least weekly, on various holy days, etc. We can go visit Christ personally in the Blessed Sacrament. We get to do that. Baptists don't even know about it. Presbyterians think it's a joke. It's not our faith. It's the faith that's been given to us to give to others. How many of you here know a good Protestant? That's all? Wow. How many of you think if you went up to your good Protestant friend and said, point blank, I want to schedule some time with you, not just as we're like getting in the car, going to pick up the kids or whatever, but I want to schedule some time with you because I care about you and I want to sit and talk with you about something. And it's incredibly important. And then you could sit down with the person and say, I'm concerned that you only have half the truth. I think you love Jesus, at least as you understand who Jesus is, your understanding. But I want to show you something more. Wonderful expression that Paul uses a couple of times in his letters is a more excellent way. It's a wonderful expression. More excellent. You love Christ. I asked my father once, I said, well, Dad, what do you think about... He took his... At, when he was in the process of converting to Catholicism and going through the uh, instructions, he took his mom uh, into a Catholic church in uh, Troy, Ohio. That's where they were when this was going on back in 1956, this would have been. And he took her into a uh, Catholic church, and she was like, oh, my... Look at them all there. They're praying to the statues and pagans and idolatry. She didn't know. And I know that's always been a source of concern for my father, that she died thinking the Catholic Church was all, you know, a bunch of crazy pagan idol worshipers. And I said, Dad, you know, how do you feel about your mom? And your dad also, we were talking about his mom. And he said, well, she was the first to tell me about Jesus. That's a beautiful reflection. Build on that. She died shortly before my dad became Catholic, so he never got a chance to kind of spend time with her on this issue. That's a beautiful thing. Build on that. 
unlike these crazy Stephen Hawking's and Christopher Hitchens who don't even believe in God, we have people who are professed Protestants and people inside the church who think like Protestants, who reject any number of teachings of the church. We need to reach out to them. We need to reach out to them and make it a mission, a goal. This isn't something to write down you know, notes and things on and feel all good about and applaud at the end and everything and then go out and go, oh, that was a nice conference and stuff, now I've got to go on and we've got to go take care of whatever business we've got to go take care of. If that's what it's for, the conference is a waste. We're supposed to be saving the world. And you save the world by saving your part of the world. By talking to people in your sphere, whether it's your family and they're fallen away Catholics, which is a Protestant, or people who are professedly Protestant, who are your friends or neighbors or people you work with or other people in your family or whatever. And yeah, are these talks going to be difficult? Yep, they're going to be difficult. For the most part. Maybe you'll get that once-in-a-lifetime thing where you say something and someone goes, oh, thank God you finally said something. I've been dying to ask you and I didn't know how to ask. Tell me everything. <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're going to be difficult. Are you going to have, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe rub some people the wrong way? Yep. Are they going to stop inviting you over to the barbecues? You bet. If you bring something up at Thanksgiving, are they going to be, well, time to get out the turkey. Yep. You cannot let these things deter you. We stand on the shoulders of martyrs. People who gave their all. Why are you doing it? Are you doing it to win an argument? To make a point? First person at the parish who gets 10 converts gets a free toaster? No. You're doing it because you love them. You may not actually like them. But you're doing it because you love them. You love your enemies. You love your neighbors by getting them to heaven. That's why we pray for them. That's why Jesus commands us. Pray for your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. So show up at the family dinners. Show up at the barbecues. Show up at the family reunions. Show up at the whatever the event is and start talking about the church. It's been my experience before I started doing this uh, that you really don't have to spend a lot of time waiting for the discussion to begin. <laughs> Within five minutes, someone makes a crack about Oh, that pedophile priest. Oh, that stupid stuff about birth control. Oh, the Pope and everything. Oh, it just, you know, it takes no time for the topic to come up. That's the Holy Spirit giving you your opening to step in and defend our blessed Lord. And then after you've defended him, now you can advance him. Yeah, you know what that priest did is wrong, but thank God for the priesthood because they bring us, the priesthood brings us Jesus Christ in the blessed sacrament. What? Get into the discussion. If you have to skip your turkey and mashed potatoes, skip it. This is what being a Catholic is all about. This is the only thing being a Catholic is all about. On your way to holiness, bring as many people with you as you can. Archbishop Fulton Sheen used to say, anyone, uh, the, the quickest way to get to heaven is to reach out your hand and take someone else with you. 
such a brilliant man. And it was always said so simply. When I was 14 years old, I said this in a vortex a few days ago, when I was 14 years old, I was uh, uh, an altar boy at Mass in San Francisco. We lived right across the street from St. Mary's Cathedral, that ugly thing that looks like a washing machine agitator. That's, we lived directly across the street from that. And uh, it was the Feast of the Bicentennial, uh, uh, July 4th, uh, 1976. I was 14 and a, uh, whatever, I was a freshman, I think, in high school. And Bishop Sheen, three years before he died, was coming to give the homily. And it was a wonderful homily. I actually quoted it a few times in different news stories and things in my career since. It's really one of those, he just had such a great presence. He had the presence of Christ. And he spoke with the power of the Holy Spirit for the love of God the Father. Just emanated, flowed out of him like light flows out of a bulb. And he, uh, and afterwards, he was back in the back in the sacristy. And this is a cathedral, this huge sacristy, like the size of this room. And he's over here in this corner talking to the altar boys. And he was saying, I'm not sure which one of you really, like, smoked the place up with the incense. That would be me. Um, <laughs> and, he, uh, and he was standing there talking to a sweet, wonderful elder man. He was 76 at the time. Sweet, wonderful guy. And on the other side of the... Uh, the sacristy, this kind of neatly dressed hippie came in. He's probably 25, I guess, somewhere around there. He had this big book in his hand, and he's walking across the sacristy. He's like, Bishop Sheen, Bishop Sheen, hey, I've just come back from the Far East, and I've written this book on all of the great truths and combining Catholic and Eastern truths. And sweet little Bishop Sheen, who's about this tall, wheeled around and said, Get out! Get out! The Catholic faith is a gift from Almighty God. I will not have you polluting it. Get out! Just like that. And he turned right back around and said, so you put an awful lot of incense in that. <laughs> that is the spirit of an apostle. That is the spirit of an apostle. Father Hardin, who many of you uh, know either through uh, maybe personal uh, contact or certainly through uh, his writings and uh, and his reflections and his preachings, the Marian Catechist movement, said, until today's Catholics recapture the spirit of the early church, America is lost. It's true. One of the things, when we get out of the discussion between Catholics and Protestants, one of the issues that comes up, these distinctions and these differences, see, they have real life realities and consequences to them. This isn't just, oh, in their theology school, they talk about this. And in this theology school, they talk about that. It's not just that. It's that these theologies beget morality. And these moralities beget choices. And these choices drive societies. They drive cultures. They drive nations. Every evil, to quote Pope St. Pius X, uh, Pope St. Pius V, all the evil in the world is due to lukewarm Catholics. Write that one down. Sear it into your brain. All the evil in the world is due to lukewarm Catholics. Why would he say that? Well, it's true. But why is it true? 
It's true because to the Catholic Church has been given the fullness of truth for the salvation of the entire human race. And when the church walks away from that responsibility, singly or in different councils, or not councils, but in different groups or bodies or committees or whatever, and they deny that either directly or by their actions or other choices, the society is what suffers. The world suffers. The church is in the world to be a bulwark against evil and to defeat the kingdom of Satan and replace it with the kingdom of heaven. That is our mission. That is our job. If we do not do that, evil advances. Period. There is no neutral ground in this war. We are in spiritual warfare. I can't remember which father of the church it was that said it. I think it was Chrysostom, but don't quote me on that. But one of them, one of the fathers, early fathers of the church said, in the spiritual war, there is no, there is no retreat. You fight or you die. In spiritual war, there is no retreat. You fight or you die. And the only way to win is to die fighting. This is what, this is what the Catholic life is. Look at the world around us. Look at the world around us. 56 million children butchered. Our own American, American citizens, our fellow countrymen, butchered. Ripped apart, sucked out through vacuum cleaners, thrown into furnaces. Who knows how many more because of contraception? How many more people uh, uh, proceed on a path to hell? By the millions, by the tens of millions. Cohabitating. Divorced and remarried multiple times. Catholics walking up to receive our blessed Lord's body and blood in a state of mortal sin, damning themselves as they consume his own flesh and blood. St. Paul tells us that. We are the bulwark against evil. The church is the bulwark against evil. We must be in a state of grace, which means confession, holy communion, prayer life. We must do that, and we must be about saving the world. How well is the church doing this? Look at the world. That's how well we're doing it. It's a really easy rule of thumb. You want to know how good the church is doing what it needs to do? Look at the world. You want to know how good the world is doing? Look at the church. Jesus could, the Holy Trinity could, have just created us all and given us a choice like the angels. Right here, here and now, make a choice, boom, okay, heaven or hell, that's it. But no, he put us into the world. He created a temporal universe with space and time and matter so that we could be redeemed this way, so that we could be saved because we are in the world, not in spite of it, but because of it. We gain our salvation by conforming ourselves to the will of God as taught through the truths of the Catholic faith and then leading others to that path. If you die in a state of grace, you are guaranteed heaven. Some of us might spend a few millennia in purgatory. <laughs> 
But even the holy souls in purgatory are saints. No sin can ever touch them again. What a blessed moment that must be. Even if you find out that you're in purgatory until the end of time, you made it. You're saved. <coughs> How do you know you're in a state of grace? If you are not conscious of any mortal sin, if you have been to confession, received absolution, been contrite, sincerely contrite, done your penance, whatever it is, you're guaranteed heaven. That's the whole point of Catholicism. It's the whole point of the church. Over here, can you go to heaven? I suppose you can. But you won't be in heaven because you denied the church, the truth of the Catholic Church. You will be in heaven in spite of it. The only people in heaven are Catholics. Well, he saves the zinger for the last five seconds. I did not say that only Catholics go to heaven. I said, in heaven, there are only Catholics. Because the fullness of the truth has been given to the Catholic Church. The fullness of that truth revolves around the unity of the truth of the Holy Trinity. Anyone who is in heaven will subscribe to and welcome their arms, open arms, and embrace and love that truth. There will not be people in heaven arguing whether, you know, Lutherans are right or what's not going to happen. Father, I pray that they all may be one as you and I are one. There is no disunity in heaven. People who may make it to heaven, who have rejected that Mary is the mother of God, if they are in heaven, they will accept her as the mother of God. They will accept all of the truths of the Catholic Church, not because the Catholic Church developed them, but because the Catholic Church merely repeated what heaven told her to repeat. And if they are in heaven, they will have those truths evident to them. And they will accept them all. And they will love them all. It's your duty, it's my duty, our responsibility to take care of this situation and restore the unity of the church here on earth. That's what it is to be Catholic. And it's going to cost you. Oh yeah, it's going to cost you. But blessed are you when men revile you and speak all kinds of calumny against you. For my name's sake, rejoice and be glad for your reward will be great in heaven. And that's what we're all about. Getting us and everybody we know into heaven. God love you. Talk to you soon.